We are here with a very special guest today, Sammy Steigman, who is a Holocaust survivor currently enduring the coronavirus in New York City. How are you doing, Sammy? Well, first of all, uh, thank you, Amanda. For me, this is a brand new experience. Never done it before, and I'm very, very honored, especially doing it with you. Now, the interesting part is I live in New York, the epicenter of the coronavirus. I have been cooped up in my apartment, okay, for six weeks. The only thing that I can see is the brown walls across the street. It's a very narrow street. Okay, and parked cars. That's too that bad. was that was for six weeks. Okay, and I have to be here probably for another month. And uh, I went out only uh, three times during this particular time uh, for very very short period of time, just to go to the store and maybe to work one or two uh, blocks. Uh, I am alone. On the other hand, I want everybody to understand. I am not lonely. So thank God for the social media, Zoom, and everything else. And uh, although it's not the same thing like being in front of the students, engaging them personally, everything else, nevertheless, it uh, helps a lot for me to be able to go through it. And all I'm saying is for the people, there is no reason for people, okay, to be lonely. Okay, they have many ways, okay, to pass time and everything else. But I have some good news too also. Uh, I just called the doctor because I wanted to make sure, okay, it's a doctor that really cares. And I wanted to make sure, okay, that I can go out. And he said, definitely, 100% not to use public transportation. Definitely not in New York. However, he said, you don't have to use the mask, the gloves, or anything else. I was surprised. I may do it, okay? But it was amazing that the the doctor told me, knowing me, my situation, that I don't have to use those things. When when do you not have to use those things? Like, when would that start? Well, he said right now when I'm going out, as long as I'm away from people, okay, let's assume I'm in the park. There's nobody there. I don't have to wear the mask or the gloves. If you're six feet away and there's no one near you, then they couldn't, then the virus could not get you. Correctly. So right now, one of the things I want to do is I want to go to the park, okay? So I'll take the bus to go to the park, and over there I can be free, and I will meet a friend of mine. Okay, so I will wear the mask because I will be with my friend. Okay, or we can be six feet apart. But otherwise, uh, he told me that I do not have to wear uh, the mask. I I definitely uh, can go out. That's very nice to hear. In L.A., even us young people have to wear masks. That's what the mayor said. We have to wear masks till June. And the interesting part is that uh, supposedly uh, the droplets, the virus, does not survive in heat. And it's warm in uh, California. I'm surprised that in California you have to wear the mask, given young people. Very surprised. Well, I think that the scientists are hoping that the heat will kill the droplets and make them not effective in spreading the virus. But I think that they, they can't be sure quite yet. Okay.
I, I guess in a, in a very short uh, form, we can say that nobody knows what they're doing. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> During this time, I would say everyone's guessing. Yes, everybody's guessing. Yes. Okay. I'm very but glad like, to hear, though, that you're healthy and that everything's going well and that you're having your Zoom sessions. I'd love to tune into one of them. I saw that you were having a ton last week. What were those about? Uh, well, uh, for instance, uh, I, I speak to school. I spoke to schools, middle school and high school. And you should have seen the emails that I received from the kids. Absolutely heartwarming. Unbelievable. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you want, I can read one of them because it's absolutely unusual. Okay. Uh, I think, I don't know if it was a middle or a high school student. She was the only person that did notice that my presentations are different than anybody else. And if you want to, uh, later on, I will read the text to you. That would be amazing. I think that Do you that want me be... to read it? Yeah, Do you why want me don't to you read, read it? it now? You can read it uh, now. Let me, uh, let me go to... Uh, hold on, please, a second. Let me go to my computer. Uh, I'm going to rephrase because I cannot find <clears throat> the exact words. I'm going to paraphrase what the student said. Great. It's the first time that anybody noticed the difference between my presentation and every other Holocaust survivor. Uh, she said that everybody else that she listened to, they talk about something very specific and go into details. I talk about it, but they talk about the more general things, and I also go into motivational uh, speaking and teaching them, okay, what uh, to do in the future and how to have a better life. But the fact it's amazing that no adult that did it, and this is the first time that somebody noticed the difference. I knew it, okay? Uh, when uh, a teacher calls me to speak or a student, I tell them that I'm different than anybody else. But, okay, uh, this particular student was the only one ever. And if I will find it, I will send you the message and maybe you can uh, add it to it in, in your own words. Presentation is definitely very different because I even noticed when you came to speak at USC's Chabad House, you said yes. all these different motivational elements of what happened to you and how you became homeless and how you use that only to motivate you more to be able to inspire other people. And that really spoke to me. That's why I wanted you to come uh, be on this podcast. It's just it's just so incredible that you took your experience in the Holocaust where you didn't even remember what these people did to you because you were so young and you turned it into into basically a topic where you could motivate young Jewish people and people everywhere in all sorts of schools and communities. That's just so incredible. Thank you for always advocating and for making sure everyone knows what happened and the terrible atrocities that occurred during the Holocaust so that we do not repeat history. Thank you, Amanda. Uh, Amanda, by the way, I did find it, okay? So let me read it to you. Okay, amazing. Okay, ready? Yes, ready. Dear Sammy, thank you so much 
for taking time out of your day and talking to us. Often, when we have speakers, they talk about one specific experience in their life and go into detail. Whereas you, I loved how you spoke about your life as a whole and not only about your experiences, but about your mindset and motivation. Your story was incredibly powerful. It was a story of perseverance and kindness, and it really made me think. I loved listening to you and would love to talk to you more in the future. The thing that really impressed me here is the fact that she wrote there, besides everything else, but she wrote, it made me think. And that's exactly the point what I'm trying to do is to give the kids, the young people, a fresh perspective and hope, life, and faith. That's incredible. There are so many people who need to hear your message. And I'm very glad that I can provide a platform for people to hear what you have to say who would have otherwise never heard your message. I want also to stress one thing that uh, an International Holocaust Remembrance Day, January 27, two years ago, okay, uh, World Jewish Congress asked me to uh, be one of uh, the uh, their representatives. And uh, I realized for the first time that half of the world population does not know that the Holocaust happened. One third believes that the Holocaust is a myth and exaggerated. And most of the people, and I'm telling you from my personal experience, even Jewish uh, college students are totally clueless about how the Holocaust evolved. It did not happen suddenly. Uh, what happened is anti-Semitism did not start when the Nazis came to power. Anti-Semitism, this has to be known, started in the second century with the Romans. Okay. The other thing is that we have to understand is that the Holocaust evolved. What that means is that when the Nazis came to power, their goal was not to murder the Jews. Their goal was to have a Germany free of Jewish people, Juden frei. Therefore, in 1935, they came out with the Nuremberg Laws that were so draconic that a lot of the people left Germany. And uh, before uh, the war, there were between six and 800,000 Jews in Germany. At the beginning of the war, only 200,000. A lot of the Jews remained in Germany because the Jewish leaders told them, this is the most enlightened country in the world. It cannot get any worse. Now, when the war started, okay, every country in Europe surrendered within two weeks. And this is something that people have to understand. Europe was occupied. Okay. The World War II started in Poland, but Poland was never occupied. Poland was annexed, which means now it became part of the greater Germany. So here it is. In Germany, they did not want any Jews. And in Poland, they found 3.3 million Jews. What do you do with them? And uh, the Holocaust unofficially started 
on June 22, 1941, when the Wehrmacht, the German army, invaded the former Soviet Union. Behind them, there were special groups called Einsatzgruppen. Their job was to murder the subhumans. The Russians were considered subhumans and the Jews. They murdered with uh, the collaboration of uh, the local people in other countries, one and a half million Jews by bullets. Also, one and a half million children were murdered during the Holocaust. But that was unofficial. Officially, it started on January 20, 1942, in a city which today is Berlin. In Vinci, 15 high-ranking Nazi criminals got together to decide the final solution to the Jewish question. And they went by each country, how many Jews lived there, and they came out with a total amount of 11 million people. Among them was one person that was not a member of the policymakers. He was the one that implemented it. And I use him as an example to understand the efficiency of the Nazis and their collaborators to be able to murder 11 million people in a very short period of time. His name was Adolf Eichmann. Adolf Eichmann, towards the end of the war in 1944, in only two months, deported 437,000 Hungarian Jews to their deaths. It is absolutely unbelievable. And I will tell more about Eichmann later on when I will talk why the Jews did not speak until the actual trial of Eichmann happened in Israel. Yes, Amanda, uh, I belong to two generations. I'm a Holocaust survivor, which means that I was in one of the three type of camps. Concentration camps, where people were divided who will live and who will die. Uh, a labor camp, where I was with my parents, which means that you were basically uh, a slave and the dead camps. Now, something interesting that people do not know. In 2013, there was an article in New York Times in a Daily Mirror in London. And it's a piece of information that absolutely shocked me. The Nazis and their collaborators had 42,500 different type of camps. Okay, when we talk about different type of camps, not all of the camps were barbed wired. If they came to a town and they brought in the Jews and they put them you know, in the plaza, they shot them, that was also considered a camp. But this is the interesting thing, because 42,500 different type of camps. Of those camps, only six were actually dead camps, where they killed around the clock, 24-7. Auschwitz-Birkenau, Treblinka, 
Belzec, Subibur, Chelmno in Majdanek. But in 1991, there was another group of people that were finally recognized as Holocaust survivors. And they are called the hidden children. These were people that were saved by strangers at the risk of the life of their entire family. And also, uh, they lived in sewers. They lived in, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, in the forest. Uh, they fought the partisans. So they are also uh, called hidden children. So, interestingly enough, because uh, I was in a labor camp in Ukraine, obviously I'm a Holocaust survivor. But I'm also a child of Holocaust survivors. Both of my parents survived. And for 63 years, I felt that I don't belong to either group. I felt I don't belong to the Holocaust survivors because I have no memory of that period of time. And for me, that is a blessing in disguise. I don't have to relive the horrors of that period of time, like my parents or the older generation. But I also felt I don't belong to the children of the Holocaust survivors because most of them were born after the war in BP camps, displacement camps. These camps were run by the Allies. Okay, the threat of that did not exist. They, got the, they were provided with food, medical care, clothing. However, life in the DP camps was extremely difficult until they finally were able to find a place where they could go. Okay. Mm -hmm. But they are not Holocaust survivors. It was after the war. And the threat of being killed was not there. <clears throat> yeah. So something happened in November 1st and November 2nd of 2003. And if you don't know, I will teach you a word in Yiddish called Bashir. Bashir is meant to be. Okay. The Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. closes off the general public for two days. It opened it up only to the Holocaust survivors, their children, and their liberators. There were over 8,000 people from all over the world. And at the table where I was sitting, I met a man born in the same city, Chernobyl, been in the same camp, Mogilev Podolsk, in Ukraine, the same years, 1941-1944. Okay? He was taken when he was eight months old. I was taken when I was a year and a half. And that is the difference between history and living history. Wow. Met him Okay, I finally, for the first time, felt that I took belong to both generations. And that prompted me to stop ignoring being a Holocaust survivor and do something about it. In 2007, I joined the third largest Holocaust museum in the world, the Museum of Jewish Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust in New York City, where I live. And in 2008, Again, Bashir, I was given an assignment to speak to sixth graders. Now, some of the listeners have spoken publicly. And if they remember, 
they will realize that their first presentation was not the best, was not the most complete. In my particular case, I had no story. I did not know that they can tell a story. At the same time, I had no idea what impact that will have on such young people. Bashir, they sent me thank you letters, each one better than the other. But one sixth grader changed my life forever. She wrote, P.S., your story was overwhelming. And I promise I'll pass your story to my children. When I saw the impact from my first presentation on such young people, I have decided to dedicate the rest of my life to reach as many young people as I can nationally and internationally. That's so incredible because people need to know what the truths of the Holocaust were. Like my mom's father, her, her my mom's father's siblings were killed in the Holocaust. So it's really, you wouldn't know about what happened to these people unless you were directly affected in your family by this horrible event. And I feel like so many people know of the Holocaust, but so many people just don't even know about it at all. Correct. Now, one of the things that I tell, especially uh, uh, campus uh, students, even if they don't have somebody in their family that was directly affected by the Holocaust, they should still talk about it. And what they have to do is to learn somebody's story. Tell about it and personalize it. Personalize it. What it means to them to tell a person's story. That is extremely important because if we are not going to talk about it, okay, within 50 years, the Holocaust will be a footnote in the uh, annals of history. And uh, just to give an example, in the United States, only 12 states mandate World War II, genocide, and Holocaust curriculum. And that's so it's messed some... up because I studied it in school, and that's really how I learned most of what I know about the Holocaust. I mean, obviously, in, in my synagogue and Hebrew school as well, but people who are not Jewish need to understand what the impact and what the lessons are from the Holocaust that we need to remember forever. Exactly. And the, inter the interesting part of it is that I have so, uh, spoken to some of the campus students. And I was completely shocked how little they teach them and how clueless they are. And they have to teach in one semester about World War II, genocide, and Holocaust. You cannot go into details to really understand what happened. The other thing is people think about uh, for, uh, at six million. I don't know about you, but for me, six million is just a number. Doesn't mean anything. But I, what I do is I bring it to a common denominator. If I would be on my feet for one minute and silent for that minute for every Holocaust victim, I would be on my feet and silent for 11 and a half years. Wow. Okay, the other thing is, uh, a lot of the uh, people in the audience have been to a stadium. 
from my perspective, the smallest stadium has about 50,000 people. Guess what? Imagine yourself that every single day in Auschwitz-Birkenau, they murdered all the people that were in the stadium every single day. It is unreal. Now, going back, uh, later, most of the Holocaust survivors, if you will ask them, how come you're alive? Everybody will use only one word. Luck. There is no rhyme. There is no reason why somebody lived, somebody died. Okay. The only comment that I will make is that people that had faith, believed in God, believed that there is a reason for them to live. Okay? A lot of them, a number of them survived. People that had no faith whatsoever, they committed suicide. So I'm saying that faith is very important in it. I grew up the Orthodox way. I know that the Holocaust played a major role in many people's lives. Some of them became, okay, uh, very religious. Some of them became agnostic. I today am not practicing my Orthodox Judaism, but that had nothing to do with the Holocaust. That was a personal decision. I'm alone. But when my son was in my life, I did because I believe in teaching by example. Okay. Now, going back, my luck was that I was never separated from my parents. Being too young to work, they found some use for me and they did medical experiments. The medical experiments I have suffered all my life and I still suffer today, every single moment, and I will die in pain. How so is how so do you suffer like with what ailments do you deal with if you don't mind uh going into that a bit because I want my listeners to really understand the impact that these medical experiments that you are not even aware of what they did to you have the impact they have on your okay. life. Yes. I, I I want to say something. Uh I was an extremely powerful painkillers. For about 45 years even the doctors did not believe me that I'm in pain, because like, for instance, painkiller, uh, I mean, back pain, uh, there is no specific test to prove it. So they have to see it on your face. But I came from a generation that was very stoic, and you will never know, looking at me, if I'm in pain or not. Right. Okay, but my pain, but my pain was in such an extent that it was uh, almost impossible to diagnose. Because it was not localized. I, I suffered from head, neck, shoulder, and back. But it constantly moved. The intensity was also constantly changing. It could be seven and eight. It could last for a few hours, and it could last uh, for a relatively short period of time. Or it could be three and four. Okay? So it was constantly changing the intensity and the place where it was. So with no specific, uh, how should I say, cure. And uh, the type of painkillers that I used, uh, I would say uh, that they were about two levels below morphine to understand the type of pain that I suffered from. Right now, 
the intensity has uh, changed drastically much, much lower. About uh, 20, 25 years, I did not like side effects. Since I used the medication for pain and not for recreation, I did not get addicted. Nevertheless, it took me close to one year, nine months to one year, okay, to learn to live without the painkillers. Today, and do not use painkillers. How did how okay. did you get through the withdrawals and and weaning yourself off of the intense medications and being able to live your day to day without taking it? It's like my whole life was based in one thing: never looking to the past, always looking forward, in a mindset, willpower. Right. That's crazy. I, I mean, that's that's so inspiring that you can live that lifestyle where you have gone past needing these painkillers and you've you've gotten so strong that you could surmount the pain. That is just an incredible story on top of your Holocaust story. Right. Uh, now, the other thing that I wanted to tell, because I want to talk more about it, uh, my parents also did not talk about it. So now you can understand why I felt I don't belong to that generation. And the, the Holocaust survivors did not speak until the Eichmann trial, which was in 1961 in Israel. And it so happened that in 1961, okay, the whole family came to Israel. The Eichmann trial, unlike the Nuremberg trial, which was to bring the high-ranking Nazi criminals to justice, the Eichmann trial was about the Holocaust. About 102 survivors gave testimony. It was shown all over the world for three months, every single day for three hours. That was the first time that the Holocaust survivors did not feel guilty did not feel ashamed, and did not feel like victims. That empowered them, okay, to start speaking. Wow. Uh, the, the other interesting thing is, after they finished with the medical experiments, obviously they had no use for them. And a lot of people in all of the camps were also dying uh, or left to die to a truth. Somebody will shot randomly just because somebody felt like it. But a lot of them died because of disease. They had doctors, but obviously it was only for the guards and for the SS. And some of them through starvation. After they finished with uh, medical experiments on me, there came a stage that I was dying of starvation. And there are physical signs. Big head, Swollen stomach, swollen feet. Not far away from the camp, there was a farm owned by Germans. The German woman brought food to the guards in the SS, and obviously she had access to the camp. And one day when she saw the physical signs that I'm dying of starvation, at the risk of her, the life of her entire family, she decided to give me milk. My father told me that when I finally got a few a little color on my cheek, she used to pinch me and she used to say, those are my 
rosy cheeks. But I want you to understand, people that say strangers, I specifically do not use the word Jews, are called the righteous among the nations. Six years ago, I went to Israel for three purposes. Uh, to visit my mother's grave, uh, to, at the same time, to uh, go to Zvebuker, where Ben Gurion lived, it's a kibbutz in the south, uh, I believe the first kibbutz in the south. Okay, uh, and interestingly enough, uh, to give testimony at the Yad Vashem. Next to the Yad Vashem Museum, there is a garden honoring 27,000 non-Jewish people that saved Jews. Wow. Obviously, I do not know, obviously, I do not know the name of the person that saved my life. But I was extremely happy when I saw a martyr honoring the unknown righteous among the nations. So indirectly, I felt extremely happy that I was able to honor her. That is such an incredible story. And that's so amazing. You got to go to Israel to honor her, to honor your mother, and to honor all the Jewish people. I was planning on going to Israel actually next month. But unfortunately, due to coronavirus, my birthright trip was canceled. But it, it must be so incredible to be there and to be able to see the history of our people and honor everyone. Now, since you mentioned Israel, I want to uh, make uh, a connection between the Holocaust and uh, today. Because for me, I do not dwell on the horrors of the Holocaust. For me, it is to learn the lessons from the Holocaust and how we can prevent to make sure that it will not happen again, not to the Jewish people, but not to anybody else. In another way, what I want to say is to uh, minimize and to fight a very deadly virus. And that is the virus of hate. Uh, bigotry and anti-Semitism, and I will talk more about it. But uh, let me give you an example. Uh, recently, we celebrated Passover. In Passover, the Jewish people, uh, they read from uh, the story of Exodus from Egypt, and uh, the book that we read from is called the Haggadah. But the important thing is, that at the table, when we are eating, we are reading the story, we are commenting about it, we are teaching the children about it, and at the same time, it, we have to feel that we personally were liberated from Egypt. I have an idea, I don't know how to implement it, but I would say we have to do the same thing with Holocaust. Because, like I said, a lot of people do not know the background, do not know the story. So somebody has to, or an organization, to write a book, like they have the Haggadah about, okay, the uh, Holocaust. Uh, the kids should be able to ask questions and to discuss it. Because if we don't teach it, if we don't repeat it, and the people that uh, that will do that, to feel that they were personally 
during the Holocaust in those days. Okay, the Holocaust will become a footnote in the annal of history. So that's an idea. The other thing is uh, something, uh, and there's a connection between the Holocaust and uh, Yom Hazikaron, Memorial Day. Memorial Day in Israel is not like here in the United States. It's not about a picnic, hot dog, shopping. In Israel, almost everybody knows somebody or lost somebody in the wars, okay, uh, against uh, the enemies and terrorism. Mm -hmm. But this is what I want to remember, especially for young people, to feel a very strong connection to the Israel in the importance of having the state of Israel. During the Holocaust, Jews died because they did not have a country. There were only three countries that officially accepted Jewish people. China, Dominican Republic, and Philippines. But on Yom Hazikaron, Memorial Day in Israel, we are remembering the people that died for us to have a country. And a lot of the Jewish kids, unfortunately, do not feel a very strong connection and realize the importance of the state of Israel. The other thing which is also interesting, no other country does it except Israel. Right after Memorial Day. Okay, so uh, there is a connection. We are the only country in the world that right after uh, Memorial Day, Yom Zikaron, we start celebrating our independence, the rebirth of the state of Israel, which means, okay, that Jews believe in life. Yes, we have to mourn, but only for a very short period of time and then move forward and live. That is something that no other country does. It. It's Israel, the only country. In and the it's world. incredible. Because they're honoring our people's past. Yes, I will. Here, you're right. It's all about shopping and it's all about really material stuff and just very false narratives. It's not about honoring the people of our country or anything noble like that. It's all about me, me, me. It's all about social media. It's all about all this narcissistic stuff. And it's not about embracing where we came from and understanding our history. Correct. And people have to understand that freedom is not free. It comes at a very, very high price. Now, I want also to make a connection that there are certain things that can never be eradicated. That is bullying, hatred, ideology, and anti-Semitism. I want to talk about ideology and also about uh, anti-Semitism. People that believe in an ideology are willing to die for it, are willing to kill for it. In my personal opinion, and I teach young people about tolerance. To me, it means accepting other people's opinion, other people's culture. 
You don't have to agree with me. All I'm going to ask you is to respect that I have a different opinion. But to me, uh, the neo, I mean, the Nazis were not regular criminals. They had an ideology that there is no place for Jews on this planet. So they were willing to do whatever they did. ISIS is another example, not regular criminals. So I want to, uh, to understand an ideology cannot be destroyed by gun. It can be destroyed only through education. Not completely, but at least minimize. The other thing I want to talk about anti-Semitism. We hate people because we don't know them. We don't know them because we hate them. But hate has many different forms. Number one is you don't like somebody's personality. You don't like uh, somebody's color of the skin. You do not like somebody's religion, belief. However, anti-Semitism is unique. It is started in the second century. It's not something new. It was always there. And what I'm trying to say is the unfortunate part is a lot of the Jewish leaders do not stand up for what is right. And I'm going to give one example. In Congress, there were two resolutions. One against hate, one against anti-Semitism. And the Jewish leaders were willing to compromise and put anti-Semitism, which is totally different than hatred, together with the resolution with hate. It watered down and it became totally meaningless. And this is what the young people, it is their world. They have to make it a better world for themselves, their children, grandchildren. They have to be proud of who they are, of being Jewish, and not to be afraid to fight for it. Do not ever be I think there's silent. a lot of people who need to hear that message because there are so many leaders who don't want to bring up the Holocaust because they feel that it's not relevant or something like that, when it really the case is that it is extremely relevant to especially everything going on in our society right now. It Like... I just I just think there's a lot that can be learned from the Holocaust no matter what year it is. It's something that's so horrible to happen to our people that could happen to any other people and it should never be disregarded. Right. And the biggest crime, it's not what uh, somebody else said it, I think it was Elie Giselle, the biggest crime is indifference. The Holocaust would have never happened without, okay, the collaboration of people that stood yes, by. Yes, bystanders. There were, they were bystanders to all of these horrible crimes happening. Yes. And what I want to do is I want to teach the young people, especially in campuses, to become act active. There is too much apathy there. They're afraid. And what I want them to do is to become leaders, and what I wanted to do is to really take an active role in combating, okay, anti-Semitism and hatred. And uh, a lot of the people, uh, the apathy that I have seen, it's unreal. I can give a very simple example. I spoke to the president of a Jewish uh, club organization in NYU. 
And I asked him, do you have any problems at NYU? And he said, no. I looked at him in complete surprise and I said, what do you mean? And he said, okay, when they demonstrate, there are so many of us that we just ignore them. And that's exactly the wrong attitude because they can deliver the message. We don't react. And a lot of people become indoctrinated. And once they become indoctrinated, it's extremely difficult to bring him back to Yes, reality. because once people are indoctrinated in a belief system, it's very hard for them to pull out of it and be convinced otherwise. Mm-hmm. Right. And also what I found out, a lot of the students are afraid physically to talk, but are also afraid that they will not be accepted socially in for a particular group that the they Holocaust? want to join. And I'm yeah. oh, okay. anti-Semitism. So for, standing, for standing up against anti-Semitism, these NYU students are afraid that they're going to have a social backlash. That's, that's ridiculous. Correct. So let's assume. But a lot of the kids do that. They're afraid. And that's like I told you with the one at the NYU. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. Don't be afraid. They love it when you're afraid. Be just as loud as they are. Be on their faces. And the other problem that we also have is the administration in many campuses does not protect the Jewish students. Absolutely. And that's exactly what I'm doing. Now, I could, okay, uh, one of the things that I also want to talk about is I want to talk about that things evolve and everything starts with words. Let me give you an example. If you think positively, and that is very, very important for me, it was in many ways, it was a natural uh, thing. I did not have to work very hard on it. It's part of my personality, how I survived a lot of things. Some people have to work on it. But the way you think, you think positively, you will use positive words. If you uh, use positive words, it will lead to a positive attitude to positive experiences into a better life. And I'll give you a personal example to understand what it means by thinking. And that leads to words. Uh, I was one time under extremely heavy sedation in the hospital. When I woke up, my ex said that I said something about her mother. And I looked at her in surprise and I said, me? Never. But here's the funny part. When I was by myself, I started smiling. Because that was exactly what I was thinking, which I would have never said it, okay, loudly. So remember, whatever you think, if you say something, it is in the back of your mind. So when somebody hurts you verbally, and they come to you and they tell you they didn't mean it, don't believe them. It's your choice to forgive them. It's your choice to be friends with them. But 
with what they said, they meant it because it was back in their mind. Uh, when I end, I want to tell you something, what it means to be a free man. We are prisoners of our own mind. Uh, let me do it right now and later if you want, you can put it, you know, later at the end. Okay. But let me read yes. Okay. Do you want you to can do, do it, it now, now if you'd like to. Later? Yes. Okay. It's something that I wrote. And uh, I, I wrote the following. How did I become a free man? I journeyed from trauma to triumph. I triumphed because of my mindset, my way of being, in the special way of viewing myself. Some may call it being a hero. I am a success as a human being because the worst brought out the best in me. I achieved my wisdom and confidence by accumulating personal and social habits. I have escaped the prison of my mind. I accepted the past. I let go of the past. I decided to be kind to myself. I stopped blaming others or circumstances for my predicaments. I have a choice to react to any given situation in a positive manner. I am in control. I also learned that suffering is universal. But victimhood is optional. At the same time, I have never asked myself, why me? It was always, what now? How do I move forward? So I want everybody to understand that even in the Holocaust, the Nazis and everybody else could take everything away from a person. Except one thing. And that was what they put in their head. The hope. That they never take away. That's an incredible and extremely inspiring message that you project to everyone. Because many people, I'm sure, just spent the rest of their life after being affected by the Holocaust. Being depressed, as you mentioned, committing suicide and letting people tell them who they are whereas you said no this is who I am and I'm going to inspire people and make sure they don't forget the horrible tragedies that happened to the Jewish people and that is why I was so impressed by you when you came to speak at Chabad because when I was younger a lot of Holocaust survivors you know most as you know most of them are unfortunately not with us anymore but when I was younger, there were more Holocaust survivors who were still alive and they would come speak at my synagogue in Washington, D.C., where I'm from. And we would take trips to the Holocaust Museum and we would go to the Holocaust Museum in New York with my Hebrew school on a field trip even. And we would speak with Holocaust survivors and they would not have the same message that you have. They would they would just talk about the horrors and the tragedy and leave it at that. But you talk about everything that happened 
And also on top of it, you mentioned how you can be motivational and get through anything in life. And that's what really spoke to me about your story because we all have struggles, but what do we do to overcome them? And what do we do to spread enlightenment about how this can never happen again after the fact and not just sit in our sadness and let it consume us? Thank you. Thank you. And uh, interesting enough, even you, all of us, going through difficult times in life. So all of us are motivational speakers. Okay? Uh, you can talk, uh, it's not only about Holocaust survivors. You can talk about a survivor that overcame cancer. With, uh, how did they do that? So basically, okay, we learn, okay, from our uh, tragedies, traumas, we become stronger and we become better people. Now, something else that uh, I also wanted to talk about was that would be great. And we have to use we have to use words in the proper context because otherwise we are going to perpetuate false narratives. I'm going to give you two examples from the United States, two or three. I'm going to give you an example, two examples from Israel. Number one, people are saying that the Holocaust has happened and they put genocide and Holocaust together like it's one event. And that is totally inappropriate. There is no Holocaust happening in the world. Genocide, yes. Genocide is made of two words, geno, which means group, Side means murder. It's the murder of a group of people, and that's what's happening today. Holocaust is a unique moment in history. In my personal opinion, it will never happen again because of the technology. Uh, no, everything is instant, and nobody will be able to say, I did not see, I did not hear, I did not know. But Holocaust is totally different. It is the annihilation of a group of people. During World War II, the Jews were the only group of people slated to be completely annihilated from the face of the earth. As a matter of fact, the Nazis, okay, planned to open up a museum. And they were going to call it the Museum of the Extinct Jewish Race. So when you hear somebody saying, Holocaust is happening in the world. Tell them it's a lie. Other things. Somebody is saying that there are concentration camps in this country. That is another absolute lie. Okay? If you want to compare it, you can compare it to the DP camps. But to illustrate why I say it's a lie, let me talk about Uyghur people. I was asked to speak on their behalf in front of the UN building here in New York and at the national rally in Washington, D.C. Uh, you may be surprised. I never heard of them. So I do some research, and I found out that during World War II, when the Russian uh, Jews did not want to be deported to Siberia, or face other dire consequences, they went to south to the south, areas like Azerbaijan in Uzbekistan. Uh, when the former Soviet Union dissolved, 
these areas became independent countries and they can determine their own future. In Uzbekistan lives a group of Muslims, they are called Uyghur. Their language is very close to the Turkish one and they receive the Jews with open arms. However, I found out that in China, there are 15 million Uyghur people. And about two years ago, they started deporting them. Again, they are not jumping the fence to come in. They are deported. They are tortured. Okay? They are forced to give up their heritage, their tradition, their culture, and to adapt the Chinese culture. The so-called re-education camps have nothing to do with education. And I came from a communist country, and I know wow. what I'm talking about. But in, but in this particular case, because they are tortured, and apparently the Uyghur people are just as stubborn as the Jewish people, they don't want to give up their tradition. The families that live in the United States and in the, the other countries do not know the fate of the people that have been deported. And they are afraid to call their families in China because they may be deported. So in the proper context, using the word concentration camp is appropriate. And I do. So I want to tell you, if you hear somebody telling you, and I have been to many campuses, and there are all kinds of signs, okay, that there are concentration camps here. And I asked some students, I don't want to mention the name of the uh, Jewish organizations. I don't want to blame anybody. But I asked them, did you see the sign? I saw it. And they said no. Well, if you did not right. see it, how can you, you can't. find They are totally, I'm totally, they are totally clueless. And they're not paying attention. And that is the problem. And that's what we have to teach the young people to become wow. And to be, okay? Now, talking about Israel, we just celebrated our independence day. When we talk about Greeks, we call them Greeks because they come from Greece. We, we are called Jews because we come from Judea. So, okay, so when the state of Israel was uh, reborn, we returned to our homeland, to Judea, in Samaria. If you think in those terms, and you use the word Judea and Samaria, West Bank, you automatically realize that this is not an occupation. And you cannot use, you cannot use the word occupation because you cannot occupy your own land. Okay. The interesting thing is, People use the false narrative and they use West Bank. And when you use the word West Bank, it is not a knowledge that Judea in Samaria is our own homeland. Yes. Okay. So instead of using, okay, occupation, which is confrontational and leads nowhere, we should use the word disputed territories. If you use disputed territories, that can lead to a dialogue. And let me give you an example of what I mean by a dialogue. The biggest problem that we have in the States, 
is that uh, people have forgotten how to disagree in a civil way. Let me, and people blame each other. Let me tell you, okay, two things. Okay, why I don't blame the people that put me on the street. Number two, uh, I will also tell you, which is very important, okay, what a dialogue means to me. When I was at USC, I think most of the audience will know about USC. Okay, I found out there is a Lebanese Christian uh, student that had very strong feelings against the state of Israel. Uh, today, anti-Semitism took a different form. Like they say, I'm not against, I don't hate Jews. I'm just against the state of Israel. <laughs> but who lives in Israel? Jews. So anyway, when I talked to him, uh, no, before I talked to him, I was wondering if he would be willing to talk to me. And to my surprise, he was, because he had a very large Muslim and Christian followers. And this is what happened. When I asked him, why do you feel the way you do about the state of Israel? I made sure that even facially, I did not give him the opportunity to misinterpret time confrontation. The way you treat the person, that's the way they will treat you. He gave you the same, uh, same courtesy. And about five, 45 minutes later, we shook hands. And I said, you've taken two things and putting them together. If you are against the Israeli government, you have my blessing. But the state, the state of, of Israel, Israel has is done nothing to you. You can disagree with people's policies. I agree with what you're saying, how we should look at it like that. But someone can't just be against the homeland for our people when they were displaced so many times. Correct. And then when I said, can you separate the two of them? And by having a dialogue, not confrontation, I did not say anything. I listened very carefully to what you said. I did not argue with you. Okay? But by having a dialogue, he said yes. And that's what I'm trying to say. If we're using the word occupation, that's confrontational and nothing will be solved. If you use disputed territory, that can lead to a dialogue and hopefully you know, a resolution. I just found out two days ago a very interesting interpretation about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Never heard it before, and uh, there is some truth in it. The Palestinians, it, it's not the Palestinian people, it's always mm -hmm. the government. Okay? Okay. The Palestinians do not want a state. That's what the whole world believes in. Because they had about seven or eight different options to accept a Palestinian state. Even in 1948, right. they could have accepted a Palestinian state. Okay? However, the fight is the war of return. Every single Arab Palestinian that lives today is considered a refugee, and they want all of them 
to come back to Israel. If you allow that, the state of Israel stops existing. And that's a very interesting look, okay, uh, at the conflict between Palestinians and the Israelis. So the fight is not over the land. If they would live in peace with us, we can go where they live, they can come where we live. What's the difference? It's the same thing like uh, in Europe. You're French, but you can go, for instance, to Belgium. What's the difference? Okay. This is the problem. And we have to frame it in the proper way if we want to achieve something. Uh, another thing that people do not know, and people say that during the War of Independence, between 500 and 700,000 Palestinians left Israel. You know something? It's true. On the other hand, between 700,000 and 1 million Jews left the Arab countries. And they claim there is a genocide in Israel. Let's see if it's true. Okay. In Israel today, 2.5 million Palestinians live in Israel. 2.5 million. In all the Arab countries are less than 4,000. Where is the genocide? So what I'm trying to say, if we want to combat the virus of hate, bigotry, and anti-Semitism, we can do it only through education. And I want every single Jewish student, person, if they don't have a personal story, learn somebody's story and talk about it. This has to be, okay, always repeated and to learn the lesson. I fully agree. This needs to be repeated throughout history so that the Jewish people knows what no the so that the Jewish people know what is theirs and what their homeland is because if we keep changing it and changing the story and letting people take it away from us it's just going to be another situation where the Jews are displaced right now one of the interesting things what happened is uh I found out, my parents did not talk, I don't have memory, so how did I find out that I was subjected to medical experiments? Uh, I was in the 30s. Uh, my parents came suddenly, came home unexpectedly. And it was one of those days that I was on the floor, unable to move. And I told her that uh, I'm coming from a generation that was very stoic. My father never knew that I was in pain. When he saw me in that situation, he was completely shocked that inadvertently, I don't believe that he ever intended to tell me, he told me I was subjected to medical experiments. It did not help me with the pain, but it did something else for me. It gave me the courage to ask for compensation, okay, for the suffering. And even in the United States, nobody will pay you a cent Unless you know what happened to you, you have documents or you have witnesses. And when I applied on February 8, 2002, number one, I do not know what they did to me because obviously the doctors did not come to my parents and tell them, this is what they did to your son. 
they did not know I don't know. I was homeless, which means I had absolutely no documents. And at the same time, everybody, okay, was gone, including my parents. So I sent it out just for me, forgetting uh, to get an answer. On January 26, 2004, I, not only did I get an answer, which surprised me, but I was shocked. I got a payment. A simple payment of a 2,500 German mark, which came uh, to over $5,000. Financially, did not make a difference, but there was the acknowledgement they, they did medical experiments not only in Auschwitz, they also did it in other countries, and that I was one of them. And the neo-Nazis, they are no Nazis today. They are neo-Nazis, people that believe in the Nazi ideology. The neo-Nazis in the New Jersey took an article that was in the local newspaper. I spoke to 735 uh, seventh graders in Bayonne, New Jersey, and they took this article word by word, and they changed the headline, and they are using me as an example that the Holocaust never wow. happened, and that I'm a liar. And I have the proof, and I have the proof, okay, that they used innuendos without providing the proof, okay, and at the same time, they use the innuendos, but they do not, okay, uh, put in their, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, in their article in the internet that the German government admits that they did medical experiments in other countries, that Joseph Mengele was not the only one that did medical experiments, that's the insinuation, and also that I got paid. That extenuating and, and things that prove that I am not a liar, wow. they did not put in. And that's why the internet is a power, wonderful for information. Unbelievable. But it's also a very powerful tool to spread hatred. Bigotry. And it's very easy to gain traction on these accounts. I've seen these. I've seen and, these Instagram and, accounts and these blogs and all these things that talk about how the Holocaust never happened, how the Jews are dirty liars, all this stuff. You get a million insults. And they can just say that because there's so many, especially right. Trump supporters, who will believe anything that's told to them because it makes them feel like they are the people in charge. So these people will just follow one another and they'll support each other and they will build up these accounts. And I try to report accounts when I see them that are very anti-Semitic or very white supremacist. But of course, people are always going to be making these sort of accounts and we have no control over that, ultimately. Well, we have, we have control and our control is to, okay, dispel no, it, exactly, and to react exactly. But I'm saying, like, to protest. Obviously, there will be accounts or posts that go unnoticed exactly. by all of us. And we can't control everything, but whenever we can, we should stand up for ourselves. Exactly. And okay, uh, okay, you can uh, you cannot legislate how somebody feels. I am apolitical. I don't go into politics, but I want to tell you that anti-Semitism is on both sides. 
it's not just uh, one particular side. Okay, so it's on both sides. So, but we have to fight. Uh, I also believe in reconciliation, and I decided to go to Germany. Okay, to meet with descendants of high-ranking Nazi criminals, because I wanted to see if my head, intellectually, and my heart, emotionally, that they are connected. And when I went over there, I found out that we have more in common than different. And these young German people found out what their grandparents did, were completely shocked, and today they are yes. very pro Well, to close out this podcast, I feel like everything you've spoken on is so important and so influential for everyone, not only Jewish people, but all people around the world. What is one message you would like to close out with to end uh, and that you would like to close out with to end this discussion and to pretty much just give everyone your biggest piece of advice? The biggest piece of advice, do not let anybody define who you are. Be proud of who you are. Let go of the past and always move forward. The past belongs in the past. And at the same time, okay, what I want everyone is to become active. Social media, writing on social media, I'm against this, will not solve the problem. We have to be physically active. If somebody is demonstrating and saying lies, we have to demonstrate in their face and to say that's a lie. Okay, so we have to be, become very active. Uh, the older generation is not going to do it. It's uh, already, how shall I say, uh, they're entrenched in their old ways, but the young people have to become active. And that is my goal, to empower them, not to be bystanders. I want to become upstanders and proud of being a Jew and fighting for the state of Israel. And yes, the connection that's amazing. To the state of Israel. It's not a different, not, not a different country, another country. It's our homeland. Yes, we do need to remember that. And I think that you make a good point that only the young people can really influence people in this way. You know, as a Jewish rapper and as a Jewish TV film producer, you know, I'm moving up in the industry. I find that there are a lot of Jewish people who want to help each other. But there's also a lot of non-Jewish people who see Jews as all the stereotypes and they want to paint a bad picture of us and they don't want to see us succeed. But we have to prove to them that it's not just about being Jewish. We are all people, and we should all be respected the same. Exactly. And I will also add one more comment, since you brought brought it up. Uh, for instance, the Holocaust is not a Jewish issue. Six million were Jews, but five million were non-Jewish people that died. So it's a universal issue. And right now, one of my goals is to be, be part of the Kufai's speaker bureau. If you don't know what Kufai is, is Christians United for Israel. And they have a membership of 8 million people that believe, okay, in the right of Israel yes. to exist.
So uh, it's important. It's important that we reach out to other groups of people, not only Jewish people. And there are plenty of them, and we should do everything possible, okay, to befriend them, and okay, to fight together, yes. to have a unified. Fully plan. agree. And I think that people should follow you on social media. So, should they add you on Facebook? What should, where should they find you and to see your content? Okay, okay. I have to yes, tell something course. else with your permission. First of all, okay, the only social media that I use is Facebook. So they can be befriend me on Facebook. One thing that I want to say, and this is what I teach the young people under no circumstances ever to give up. Here is somebody that lives under the poverty line. $1,299 a month in New York, in Manhattan. Somebody that has no connections. As a matter of fact, somebody that does not promote himself. Where I live, across the boulevard, there is a school I never went there. And I have two tax-deductible foundations. One of them in Mexico. People, people opened it up for me. And I have Amazing. to in New York. And when I when I go to schools, universities, I do not do it and do not ask for money to benefit me. It's only the only money will go directly to the foundation. The name of the foundation is Tamid T A M I D N Y C dot org forward slash S-A-M-I. The interesting part is somebody with nothing has, okay, two foundations. And what surprised me the most is that two board members told me what they wanted to do with the money they have. Uh, I am an honorary CEO which means that I tell them what I want, they do the work, and I have to approve it. So they came to me and they said, we have $12,500. I was completely shocked that they got that much money. It's something new. And they said, what we have decided is to give away all of the money. And I said, that's wonderful, but what are you going to do about next year? He says, don't worry about it. Next year is another year. So my goal was, to honor an outstanding student, but at the same time, that student has also, okay, must do something for the community. So they have decided to give $5,000 scholarship to a student. Obviously, there will be competition, and they will give $5,000 to the organization that that particular student will volunteer for. And they will have four other small prizes. So what I'm giving, and then again, I'm going to say, do not ever, under the worst circumstances, give. That's lose, so inspirational. Lose hope. Tomorrow, remember. Tomorrow, remember. Tomorrow is a new day. It's a fresh day. 
It's a new beginning. And Amanda, I want to thank you. You have given me the opportunity uh, to speak. Obviously, there is a lot more you can get to, more things. But I think that uh, we covered a lot, a lot of ground. And uh, I am extremely grateful. I'm so grateful to you too, Sammy. Thank you so much for coming to talk on here. And once coronavirus is over and you're back in LA for a speaking engagement, I would love to do the short film we were talking about or a documentary or something of that sort. It would be so incredible and inspiring to do that with you. I would love it. And uh, what I want to do, I want to finish it. Congratulations. Thank you so much. That means a lot to okay. me. Okay, I'm definitely staying positive and not giving up hope that I can work in the entertainment industry once all of this is over and just staying hopeful that everything's going to work out. Okay, and I teach the young people to go for something that they are passionate about. 